The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from the first book of Kings, chapter 17, beginning at verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber of the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Living God, help us to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we may truly understand and understanding that we may believe and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you for the second time. Appreciate that. Uh, Good morning, folks. Good to be with you. First Sunday in our summer series on the prophet Elijah, this eccentric, weird, fanatical, wonderful, spokesman for the Lord. Uh, This past week, uh, I encountered a significant contrast uh, related to children. Uh, On one side of the contrast was what happened yesterday on the quad, uh, you know, right across the campus here, uh, when the CPC Kids Ministry put up some bouncy houses, opened up the quad, put out a bunch of playthings, and silly straws, and slushies, and uh, there was just joy, laughter, play, a whimsical spirit everywhere. Uh, And of course, there's the contrast from that of the grief and the tears and the trauma of what we keep hearing about uh, in the news with respect to uh, violence toward children. Now, there is no more devastating experience that a parent can have than 
the loss of a child. Uh, I remember several years ago, Kay Warren, who is uh, married to Rick Warren, they've been leading Saddleback Church in California for the last 40 years or so. Um, their son died in his 20s from uh, self-harm, and he had a mental illness and was also a believer. And she said this on the one-year anniversary of Matthew's death. She said, I've been shocked by some who have commented that perhaps I should be ready to move on. I have to tell you that the old Rick and Kay are gone. They're never coming back. We will never be the same again. In other words, this grief, this unique kind of grief, leaves an indelible mark that will never go away. You're never the same again. In the same interview, uh, her husband Rick, who agrees with everything that she has said here, also says, in God's garden of grace, even broken trees bear fruit. And he went on to talk about how Matthew's life, as tragically as it ended, uh, has uh, led to great impact in the kingdom of God and in the lives of many people. And that includes the founding of uh, an organization out of Saddleback Church uh, serving those with mental health concerns and their families, which is a worldwide ministry now. Now, that's no consolation for the great loss that they've experienced, but what I want to talk about today is the question, how is it possible for such unspeakable sorrow and hope to exist at the same time. Now, this is our introduction to Elijah the prophet. He's a prophet in Israel uh, during the reign of King Ahab, who was uh, an evil man. And it's very difficult to be a spokesman for God in a climate that, his, that is led and governed and controlled by the forces of evil, but that's the situation. On top of that, there's a drought in the land. There's no dew, there's no rain, as it says in the text here. And we find Elijah here with a widow and her son, and they have been suffering from hunger and thirst. And then her son becomes ill, and then he dies and she's left alone, and, and what unfolds is, is um, a bit of a redemptive drama that uh, confirms the words that Rick Warren had shared uh, in light of his own loss. Broken trees bear fruit. And uh, what we want to talk about, what I want to talk about today is, is specifically what we learn about the gospel and the way that God operates with people especially in the face of things like sin and sorrow. And uh, the headings today or the points today would be no condemnation, no separation, and no ultimate devastation for those who belong to Christ. And so we'll, t we'll start with no condemnation. So this is, really this is actually very characteristic of people who have sensitive spirits. When hard times come, those with sensitive spirits begin with the question, what did I do wrong? This must be something 
with me that has caused this. In verses 17 and following, we see that the the boy's illness was so severe that there was no breath left, left in him. He died. He passed away. So the mother says to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. So there's this cause-effect situation that she sees between uh, her sin, her imperfection, and the devastation that has been brought into her life. You've heard the lyric, I'm sure, from uh, John Lennon, instant karma. Instant karma is going to get you. It's going to knock you right on the head. You better get yourself together or pretty soon you're going to be dead. Karma. It's a way of thinking. It's actually the natural human way of thinking without the gospel, that everything is cause and effect. If you're good, then good things will happen to you. If you're bad, then bad things will happen to you. You know, John Lennon is not the first person to think this way. You know, we see it in the book of Job. Job has lost everything, including ten children. And there are a handful of what the book of Job calls counselors or friends that that show up for Job, and they do a really good job showing up early on because they, they just show up, and they offer their presence, and they offer no advice. They offer no conclusions. They don't try to read the mind of God, but eventually they get uncomfortable in the quiet, and they start to blame Job. What was it that you did to bring this upon yourself? And the drama unfolds. You can read about it, but toward the end of the book, we see that the Lord confronts Job's comforter friends with a sharp rebuke for this kind of thinking. But it's not just in the Old Testament. We also, we also see it in the New Testament from Jesus' disciples. John chapter 9, uh, they encounter a man who has been born blind, and the disciples ask a question, what's the cause that, that, that led to this effect? Was it this man's sin, or was it his parents' sin that caused him to be born blind? And Jesus says to them, it was neither this man's sin or, or, or his parents' sin that caused this. This has all happened so that ultimately God will be glorified. Just watch the story unfold. So, John Lennon's um, neighbor, actually Yoko Ono's neighbor, um, they both live in the uh, Dakota, which is an apartment building that we used to pass by uh, on our way to Central Park uh, in New York City in the West 70s. Uh, His neighbor Bono says this, at the center of religion is the idea of karma. What you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, it's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe, and yet along comes this idea called grace to upend all that. As you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies that reason and logic. Love interrupts. The consequences of your actions, which in my case are very good indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. And so from this thinking, Bono and his colleagues in the band U2, you may have heard of them, 
they recorded a song called Grace. And one of the lyrics in that song says, Grace, and, and he writes and sings as a Christian, by the way, Grace <clears throat> travels outside of karma. It's the antithesis of karma. It travels outside of karma. Grace finds goodness in everything, and grace makes beauty out of ugly things. What a beautifully rich, true theological statement. Now, Elijah neither agrees with nor corrects the woman's assessment. You know, she says, well, it must be my sin that has brought this devastation on me. He doesn't try to read the mind of God. But what he does do is he shows up with the heart of God, which is a heart to care for those who have been devastated, whether it's their fault, somebody else's fault, or the fault of a, of a broken cosmic, you know, universe that's fallen. Whatever the reason, he shows up with compassion. He assigns no blame to anyone because the one and only thing that he's sure of is, is that even though this woman's sins may be many, as we'll see, sing later on today, God's mercy is more than whatever deficiencies or defects we bring to the table. And so what he does is he prays for her, and it says that the Lord listened. That's where we get a, a glimpse into the heart of God. He's not this retaliatory, capricious, moody, vengeful God just waiting to pounce on our failures. That's not Him. He travels outside of karma. He rejects karma. The Lord listened. You know, karma separates the world between the presumed good people and the presumed bad people. Grace separates the world between the proud and the humble. And this woman is, is certainly coming from a humble place in her distress. She's begging and pleading to the man of God that he'll intervene, and that's exactly what he does with his prayers and with his care and compassion. Bottom line here, with respect to the karma conversation, Bono is right, John Lennon was wrong. Instant karma is not going to get you. If you belong to Christ, it's not even remotely possible that you would ever be the on the receiving end of God's retaliation. It's not even possible because Jesus has already absorbed every bit of that before you were even born on the cross. God will never treat us as our sins deserve because Jesus has already taken the treatment that our sins deserve. Our remaining work is to receive it, and that's it. So, no condemnation. Secondly, no separation. So, this woman feels abandoned. She feels separated from God, so much so that she doesn't talk directly to God. Instead, she pleads with the man of God who's standing between her and God. And she says to him, what have you against me to cause the death of my son? And Elijah then turns to the Lord and says, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon this widow 
and her son. See, he's asking a question himself out of, out of his own feeling of perplexity. This whole scenario doesn't add up to Elijah either because God has shown himself already to be famous for showing up on behalf of widows and orphans. One of the most famous stories is from the book of Genesis uh, and the account of Hagar and her son Ishmael who find themselves homeless and abandoned and destitute. And, And Hagar cries out to God in those circumstances, and God shows up assures her, reassures her, promises to care for her, promises to care for her son, and then she comes up with a name for the Lord. And the name means God who sees. He sees me. So anytime a believer like a Hagar or a believer like Elijah or like this woman in her faint faith, her frail faith, any time a believer, any believer, no matter how weak or how strong your faith is, any time a believer feels forsaken by God, the feeling may be real, but it is not true. It's a real feeling, but it is not a true feeling. You know, the things that we associate with God's rejection, when, when, when we think in terms of karma instead of grace, the things we associate with God's rejection are our sin, there's no way that He could love somebody like me, or our suffering and our sorrow. This, is ha- this must be happening because God is, for some reason, disappointed with me or with us. But these very things, our sin our suffering, they are the very things that trigger God's mercy more than anything else. They trigger His compassion more than anything else. This is King David. If there ever was a sinner and a sufferer, it was King David. You can read about him in the books of First and Second Samuel to read all about his sin and his suffering. He wrote the 145th Psalm in which he said these famous words, the Lord is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding or heavy in love. Now, this word that David uses for compassion in the Hebrew, the original Hebrew, it's meant to give off the the, the sense of, of, of the feeling that a mother gets about a child in her womb, especially if she senses that that child is uncomfortable or undergoing some kind of distress. There's this protective, compassionate, merciful, deeply felt for the child kind of feeling. And the closest I've ever been to that feeling myself as a father uh, was at two points. At, 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 at the time that, that, that each of our daughters was born, and at a time when we thought we might lose our oldest daughter because she got dehydrated, and, and sometimes when you get dehydrated, you healthcare folks will, will, you know, can teach us about why this is the case, but if the dehydration gets to a certain level, you, 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 your body just keeps, you keep vomiting, and, 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 and 
more and more liquid keeps passing out of your body, and, and, and you just start to shrivel up. And our, 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 our precious oldest daughter, who was like almost like a raisin, and we take her into the emergency room, and we're terrified. Like, what does this mean? Where, 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 where's this going? And all I could do was feel just the deepest warmth and the deepest protective impulse for our daughter during that time. And all it took, you guys, was, was just an IV and a drip and a little bit of water. Within 20 minutes, she was revived. And it was the greatest feeling ever. But, but, but I remember when, when we feared, you know, the, the situation, I, I had never felt more warm and never felt more compassionate toward my daughter than, than I did when she was in pain, when she was helpless. When our children are at their weakest, our mercy impulse is at its strongest. How much more with the God who created us, with the God who sees? You know, God's answer to our sin, this, you want to know who God is? You want to know what God is like? This is what God is like. His answer to our sin is not condemnation, but grace. His answer to our sorrow is not rejection, but tenderness. His answer to our defects is not disgusted retreat, but pursuing kindness. His answer to the grossest, most defeating things and most shameful things about us is not to shout us down or to shut us out, but to quiet us with His love. That is your God. He travels outside of karma. He wants to crush the idea of karma. He doesn't love you because of what you bring. He loves you because you are weak and falling apart, and His mercy, His compassion, the womb of God is stirred on your behalf. And how does he show up? You know, this often comes up in our staff conversations at Christ Pres. When God wants to send us a gift, most often he does so in the form of a person. This is what a community that is driven by grace, driven not by karma but by grace, is going to give off a low bar. We will take anyone. We'll accept anyone. We'll receive anyone. We'll welcome anyone. The bar is so incredibly low in terms of, of what is required of you. And we sing about the fitness that the gospel requires sometimes. All the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him, to recognize that you're dehydrated, that, that, that you're turning into a raisin, all the fitness that he requires is, is for you to say, help, help. That's what's distinctive about grace-oriented people and grace-oriented communities. We will take anyone and we will touch anyone. Look at Elijah. He says to the woman, give me your son. 
And then he lays the son, the dead son, down on the bed. He cries out to the Lord for this son's healing, and then he stretches his entire body over the son. Now, realize this son is ritually and ceremonially ceremonially unclean in the religious community of Elijah's day, and he, he puts his whole body on top of this young man. Why? Because because the womb of God is stirred, especially toward sinners and sufferers. The mercy impulse of God is stirred and is at its strongest when we are at our weakest. And then it says, the Lord listened. So Hagar says, the Lord sees. And this widow can say, the Lord hears. He sees and he hears. He's, he's filled with empathy. And finally, no devastation. The Lord spares the boy. He breathes life back into the boy, returns him to his mother. Resurrection in real time, a lot like the Lazarus event in John chapter 11. But here's where we need to be careful. We can't pin our hope on short-term fixes because either this mother is going to bury her son again, you know, later on in life or the son is going to bury the mother. There's going to be a separation at some point in a world that, that, that involves death, mourning, crying, and pain. This is a temporary solution in the same way that the Lazarus uh, event was a temporary solution. The greatest need in tragedy, and this is hard for us to hear, but our greatest need in the face of tragedy is not immediate present relief, which, which is nice and wonderful if and when it rarely happens. But the greatest need is not immediate present relief as much as it is an imperishable future hope. An imperishable future hope. And so, I've been here 10 years and We've had several funerals in this very sanctuary where parents put their children into the hands of the Lord. And in one such case several years ago, uh, a young teenage boy uh, died a premature death, and the mother approached me after the funeral and said, I feel like I'm in a nightmare, And, and at some point... I'm going to wake up from all of this. And, you know, this is one of the honors that we as pastors get to have in the lives of people. When people say things like that to us, I feel like I'm in a nightmare and and I'm going to wake up from it at some point. We get to say that's exactly right. Your instinct, what you feel, is true. The nightmare and waking up from the nightmare metaphor is is the perfect metaphor for the reality in which you live. Even in this moment, right now, God sees you. God hears you. How do we know this? The worst thing that's ever happened to anybody happened to the greatest, most beautiful son who ever lived. Jesus Christ. The happily ever after is coming. It's on the way. All who are in Christ 
will wake up in the same way that this son wakes up, except not temporarily, but forever, will wake up from the nightmare, and then, and then the Scripture describes very vividly in the last couple of chapters of Revelation the new heaven and the new earth, which is a future reality for every believer. What will not be there are things like death, mourning, crying, pain, hurt, sin, evil, funerals, separation, will not be there. What will be there is Jesus, love, touch, reunion with loved ones lost, and life forevermore. You know, I love the song by Sandra McCracken called Fool's Gold. It's a grief song. And, and here, here, here are some of the, the lyrics from that song where she says, if it's not okay, then it is not the end. And this is not okay. So I know, yes, I know this is not the end. This heroic mother who shared with me about how she felt like she was living a nightmare, she re received it. When I said your, your, your nightmare metaphor, 100%, 100% right, 100% true, 100% the reality you actually are living in. The fallen world is a nightmare, and we will wake up from it forever, 100%. She received it. And on the one-year anniversary of her son's death, I receive, if, if you've ever seen any of my pastor videos, you know, with my books in the back and over my left shoulder, there's a sign that says, all sad things come untrue. That was a gift sent to me on the one-year anniversary of this mother's death by the mother with a nice long note that's private, so I'm not going to quote it to you. But it's beautiful, it's filled with grief, and it's filled with hope, which is right where God's people are invited to live in the face of our own sin and in the face of our own sorrow. How can we be sure that this nightmare will be over? We're going we're gonna to say the words in a minute that give us the answer. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.